so let's continue with the 37 practices of a bodhisattva. We have gone from one through six. So let's now discuss the seventh practice of a bodhisattva. And that is to take refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, since they will never fail to provide protection for all who call upon them, for whom are the ordinary gods of this world ever capable of helping, as long as they themselves are trapped within samsara's vicious cycle. Okay. So... I call the Bodhisattva Practice 7, simply take refuge in the Triple Gem. Buddhism, for the most part, is a non-theistic, atheistic, or agnostic religion. It depends upon who uh, you ask. The historical Buddha preferred to speak about the human being and the mind instead of metaphysical debates, although it's there exists in the, in the sutras in parts. In the Western world, take a philosophy course and spend a third of the time postulating the existence or non-existence of God. Listen to Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and other new atheists and the scientific materialist world's attack on religious mythology abounds. Are they wasting precious time? Why not write books on ethics instead, secular or religious? And Sam Harris has done this. If God exists from the Buddha perspective, we are still caught in suffering and must find antidotes to relieve or remove karmic obscurations. However, Buddha texts do speak of various realms of suffering. The hell realm, the hungry ghost realm, the animal realm, those three are considered the lower realms. Then the human realm, the demigod or asura realm, and then the god realm. These ideas exist in the Pali Canon as well as other sacred texts. I mention these realms because many atheists are attracted to Buddhism, but must confront that the Buddha himself describes these realms, karma and past rebirths. Does an atheist simply not believe in a creator god? Can an atheist believe in past and future rebirths? What do these realms truly mean? Are they physical locations? Are they mental locations or mental states? Milarepa recognizes these realms as mental constructs perpetuated by our karmic obscurations and dispositions. However, if we think they are real places, then we mentally feel physical pain and suffering. Do demons exist in the United States? I don't believe they do, but ask others and they may give a different opinion. Whether or not demons exist, we still have the mind to work without our preoccupation with samsaric existence. The prison of cyclic existence also binds the gods. Taking refuge in Indra, a warrior god in Hinduism, may help a person win a battle. But will it allow a person to escape the cyclic existence of samsara? Probably not, according to Buddhism. 
The Hindu pantheon, according to Buddhism, is also bound by samsara. While the pearly gates or golden streets may seem like a beautiful place to arrive, we are still caught in a desire realm. To be free from suffering is to take refuge in the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the noble, noble Sangha. The aim in Buddhism is not salvation. Salvation is a destination or location of safety or impermanent refuge from samsara. When positive karma empties, the Buddhists in a God realm realize they have not achieved wisdom or compassion fully and must return to another state of being. If refuge is not salvation, what does this term truly mean? I will attempt an answer. Though I have achieved very little wisdom in this lifetime. Taking refuge in the Buddha, we recognize the impermanence of all states of being. We recognize that the Buddha showed a path beyond location, beyond mental states, and beyond suffering. This place may be called Tathagata. There are no words to describe Tathagata besides translating it to thus gone. Does thus gone exist? Does something exist in emptiness? When we ask these difficult questions, we can only conjecture. And the Buddha does not like to conjecture. Therefore, when a person asked Buddha what has changed within, he replied, I am awake, or I am the awakened one, which translates to Buddha, the awakened one. In each human, animal, and sentient being, we have the same awakened state as Buddha. In other words, we are the, the potential Buddha. Look at yourself as the potential Buddha. During meditation, if we breathe deeply and then relax in a natural state, we may experience our Buddha nature. If we experience nothing, then we are experiencing our natural state the empty space of no clinging to anything, and this radiant space of limitless compassion for all sentient beings. If we practice what the Buddha taught us, then we are stepping into our Buddha, Buddha nature of emptiness, or what I like to call primordial wisdom. If we attach to thoughts and the desires of this human realm, we return to samsara. Looking at the natural state every day, we are taking refuge not only in the certainty of Buddha's path, but also in the certainty of our own primordial nature, our own inner guru. Thus, by taking refuge in the Buddha, we are ultimately taking refuge in ourselves, our higher states of existence. Until we are Buddhas, we must take refuge in the awakened state of past Buddhas. When we have arrived, we no longer have to rely upon the Buddha for his guidance, for we are awakened permanently and have also become a Tathagata. We have extinguished the fire of self-clinging and have achieved nirvana, the empty natural state of wisdom and limitless compassion. We also take refuge in the Buddha's teachings. I realize there are different paths in Buddhism, including Zen, 
Thai forest monk traditions, Pure Land, Tibetan, Theravada, and others. But it is my opinion that all those traditions have created paths to the awakened state based on Buddha's teaching. Once a person has become enlightened in one tradition, they have further written directions directly related to the Buddha's original teachings. Did the Buddha write the Lotus Sutra? Does it matter as long as it leads us to nirvana? Others argue that the Buddha revealed these teachings to all his disciples. They were later released to history for different paths to take to fruition. However, these Dharma canons arrived. They all have the potency, the power of awakening us to our Buddha nature. Therefore, reading these Dharma teachings from our teachers or from our interpretations, we can become inspired and attain enlightenment in this life or future lives. I hope I haven't broken through sectarianism here. I hope I have broken through sectarianism here. I'm very non-sectarian, or we may, from the uh, Tibetan Buddhist perspective. Finally, we take refuge in the Sangha, the community of Dharma masters, teachers, and enlightened beings. Manjushri is a bodhisattva mentioned in the Pali Canon, among other texts. When we think of the Sangha, we don't always think of the already enlightened beings, such as Manjushri. In Tibetan Buddhism, we actually say we take refuge in the Buddhas and the assembly of the Yidams, or the Bodhisattvas. This idea of the third gem, the Sangha, the Noble Sangha, allows us to focus our refuge on all enlightened beings. In fact, Tibetans also take refuge in the lineage of masters who have taught and attained enlightenment or remained as a bodhisattva. In my lineage, the Karmakaju, we take refuge in the great teachers such as Naropa, Talopa, Milarepa, Gampopa, and all the Karmapas. We have a family tree we call the Noble Sangha. They are not only bodhisattvas in the past, but also present or idealized within us to inspire our practice. The concept of lineage is a dying breed in Western tradition. There may be a time when no lineage of Buddhism exists. If this happens, the inspiration of attaining enlightenment may also wane until all we have left are Dharma texts and the inspiration of the historical Buddha. I hope this scenario does not happen, for we truly need refuge and inspiration in all three triple gems. Now, Bodhisattva 8. The practice of all the Bodhisattva is never to commit a harmful act, even though not to do so might put one's own life at risk. For the sage himself, the sage is Buddha, Buddha Shakyamuni, for the sage himself is taught how negative actions will ripen into the manifold miseries of the lower realms so difficult to endure. I call Bodhisattva Practice 8, Subdue Our Minds. Do humans have the capacity to refrain from all negative deeds? That'd be great. <laughs> our pride, jealousy, anger, and desire flow continually through our mind streams. Even our best intentions may not operate successfully. 
We need to understand this idea because I've seen people work for others 100% and still fail. Then they doubt themselves. Why did I fail? What could I have done differently? Then guilt results, which is not the right emotion. Guilt is a wrong deed, a negative affliction. Bodhisattvas act with pure motivation and intention while maintaining positive karma, even if the actions result in a physical death. Imagine that kind of commitment. Are we willing to die for the right intention and action? We must remove ourselves from today's bodhisattvas practice and realize that since we are not pure bodhisattvas, we are bodhisattvas in training. We have something else we must do instead. We must aspire to act positively, even if we fail. When we fail, we do not say to ourselves, I am such a terrible bodhisattva. I cannot do these actions. I will fail repeatedly. Kill me now. How many times did the Buddha fail before he attained nirvana? He lived countless lives. He failed countless times as much as we do possibly more than we have. Stop sulking. Tell the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in your heart that you will try again and move on and move up. When a negative thought arises in our mind, do we catch it in time before it results in a negative action? If so, then we have stopped the negative deed from forming in reality. Imagine this concept as a starting point, particularly uh, in post-meditation time periods. We can watch our minds and listen to the negative thoughts. When they arise, we do not have to cut them like a lawnmower chopping grass. Cutting thoughts may only repress our emotions and cause more harm later. Like the mowed lawn, the grass still exists and the roots are below the surface. Instead, we can watch the grass and weeds entering our mind streams. Watching is the first step to a strong familiarization of the mind. Once we watch them long enough, they learn how to settle on their own, even though they still exist within the root system ready to rise again. If we practice Mahamudra or Dzogchen teachings or Zen, for instance, then we can go a step further and watch these thoughts dissolve into the natural state. But since I am a lazy bodhisattva, I have yet to reach this ultimate state and cannot comment on its effectiveness. There is no use acting upon what we watch flowing through our thoughts. Teddy Roosevelt said, speak softly and carry a big stick. I say, listen quietly without a stick or fly swatter. Place objects in our hands. We may want to hit something. Place quiet thoughts in our mind streams, even if they are filled with anger. We may want to allow these thoughts to settle before we speak at all. As a former Protestant Christian, I feared hell as a child. So I'm not going to stress in this book having fear of falling into the lower realms of suffering. But I will say that looking at the lower realms metaphorically, 
will solve our issues with the, quote, fruition of wrongdoing, unquote. Focus on compassion and loving kindness meditation, such as Tong Lin, when the mind stream and emotions fill themselves with wrongful thoughts. We must use an antidote to relieve ourselves from the suffering of lower mental states, such as anger, jealousy, and aggression. If a person you despise receives a promotion at work, say to yourself, may all beings along with this person be happy. May all beings in the future also receive a promotion. Then use a practice like Tong Lin until your anger toward that person subsides. That person deserves happiness as much as you. So why are you resenting that person? If you don't know what Tong Lin is, you might Google it and there should be a practice there uh, in Google to talk about it. I'm not gonna talk about it at the moment. The solution to fruition of wrongdoing are antidotes and medita medication we call mindfulness, meditation, and other kinds of visual practices. If we do not apply some treatment, then wrong thinking will result in an entire yard or garden filled with bugs and weeds. We will never be able to clear our minds in this lifetime. What have you done today to stop wrong thinking or negative deeds? Bodhisattvas spend their entire lives cutting off or evap evaporating the fruition of wrong deeds. We can do the same because we are future bodhisattvas. Bodhisattva Practice 9. The practice of all the bodhisattvas is to strive towards the goal which is the supreme state of changeless, everlasting liberation, since all the happiness of the three realms lasts but a moment, and then is quickly gone, just like dewdrops on blades of grass. It's beautiful. Um, as beautiful as that is, I call this practice, practice laughter. Friends once stated they prefer Christianity to Buddhism because of the verses like the one above. Pleasure is not allowed in Buddhism, according to them. By reading the verse, I sometimes agree. But then I recall the lamas who have taught me over the years. If I peruse Facebook and other places, they are always smiling, joking, and laughing. If they are emulating these playful, pleasurable moments, then why does Buddhism focus so much on the defects of samsara, impermanence, and karmic cause and effect? First, we must ask ourselves why the lamas are sometimes smiling. They know that life is like a dewdrop on the tip of a blade of grass. They are aware that life of each being is like a water bubble, ready to pop at an instant. If we only examine the first part of today's verse, the impermanence of life, then we have not grown into the second aspect of Buddhism, the supreme state of never-changing liberation. Remaining in the impermanent state, we have the opportunity to strain toward a nihilistic view of reality. We are going to die, so what's the point of living? Why strive for anything? Life is meaningless. Or we may move in the opposite direction. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Let's enjoy the moment so that 
much that our actions do not matter at all. Let's make love. Let's drink alcohol. Let's cruise the strip for some dudes or chicks. All right, I'll settle down. In the middle, between nihilism and endless pleasure, we have the Buddha's compromise, the middle way or balance. We need to recognize this balance, this middle path in our lives, to own the right to laugh, smile, love, show tenderness, and be human and still attain liberation. That's why the lamas are laughing. They're enjoying the single moment in their lives and practicing the Dharma simultaneously. Yes, smiles and laughter can occur even at a higher rate than alcohol, drugs, and cigarettes to heighten any situation. You have the right to laugh and enjoy life. I give you it today. Does laughter remain? No, of course not not forever. So we move to the concept of impermanence, cause and effect, and the defects of samsara. However, if we are constantly striving for liberation, we will develop a healthy sense of self or non-self that mirrors the six perfections. Generosity, ethics, patience, joyous effort. The word joy, joyous effort, Meditative step stabilization and transcendental wisdom. That's the six perfections. And joy is a part of each of these perfections. No wonder the lamas are smiling. They practice generosity through laughter. A smile creates a thousand other smiles in a room. If we want to live a happy life without nihilism or dying pleasures, then practice the six perfections. Books have been written on the six perfections. I recommend Dharma Paths by my teacher, Kimpo Karthar Rinpoche, but browsing websites will also provide a deeper insight into them. The six perfections, if practiced in our daily lives, will help us enjoy this meaningful life deeply, even though we know we will soon pass to another state of being. And there is that fear, what is that being going to be? The final perfection, wisdom, is the key to tapping into our supreme Buddha nature. When we recognize this deeper state of natural radiance, we can help others through the process of suffering to the very end of the water bubble, water bubble popping. All right, I'm gonna stop there and we'll continue with the other Bodhisattva practices on the next uh, podcast. Thank you for listening.